This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast revisiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, Otherworld, episodes five and six. The village of the motor pigs. How glad we were to escape it. Yet how much it was like our own world. A place of violence and fear where evil men seemed to be always in control. But even among the motor pigs, truth and love had great power. With that force on our side, we had nothing to fear on our journey home. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast warning you about the dangers of chalk addiction. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? It's funny you mention that, because I was going to invite you to a chalk party. Chalk party! (laughs) All chalk, all the time. (laughs) Such an interesting drug. We'll get into it, I guess, in a bit. Chalk, 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 chalk! Well, Jordan... We're, we're chugging along in other world here, but uh, we've been so busy with it. We haven't had a chance to talk at all about uh, who created other world. So I did a little research on that. That's great. I have a little, uh, a couple little uh, editorial comments I can probably add as well. Great. I don't know how much you've looked into him, but the, an interesting guy, this Roderick Taylor. Mm-hmm. Kind of looked into his background because, you know, you never know where someone comes from. And he's got a weird background that led him to being uh, a writer in television and film. He like attended Stanford, which I think is one of those Ivy Leagues, to become a poet. Really? He's like published a few collections. I think only one or two, but like he's published some collections of poetry and that was kind of his start. But while he was doing that, he also started like playing in rock bands at the time. Like it's probably 1974. Right. So he's that sort of, uh, he was going for that troubadour sort of thing. Yeah. And he was eventually assigned to like Griffin Records coming out of Stanford, I think. And uh, he even produced four albums under his uh, rock pseudonym. What's the name? Did you not read this anywhere? No, I have more of the history of the show, less about him. If you had to guess what uh, Roderick Taylor's uh, rock name was, do you have a, do you have a good guess? Uh, Roderick Around the Clock Tonight. No, oh, that's pretty good, and uh, not too far off. What is it? His uh, pseudonym as a rock star was Roderick Falconer. Oh, that's good, though. Yeah, is he like, ooh, that's, uh, that's interesting. I bet you this guy has some real uh, interesting poetry in his songs. Absolutely. Uh, and... It, what I kind of dug around, he, I think he's done seven albums before as Roderick Falconer, and they were kind of between 76 and 84. So the last one came out just before Otherworld. So he was still living high on the residuals from the, uh, from the album sales. Well, the title of his uh, 1984 album is the same as the pilot episode, Rules of Attraction. Is that right? Yeah. Do you think maybe it's one of those things where if you play the album and watch the pilot at the same time, they sync up perfectly? I mean, it's possible because remember when we were watching the rock and roll episode of Otherworld Mm -hmm. and we were talking about that song that uh, Trace and Gina write where they name drop the Beatles. Mm -hmm. That is actually his song from that album, Rock City. That's funny. So he was really double dipping there. He's like, hey, if I'm going to get a song, one, I'm not paying for it. Two, I want to get some money if it's in the show. Well, I mean, this was a lot of cross synergy here because I went and like listened to a bunch of his music and I even found like... I don't know how he has a lot of music videos, but I only found one music video he released. But it involves him going to a drive-thru, drive-thru, drive-in movie. What's the movie playing? I hope it's Otherworld. <laughs> it's Otherworld. Oh, that's hilarious. So clearly this was all happening around the same time. Like 
this show's coming out. His rock career's going on. People in the comments love him. I think people who remember him, I don't think he, I couldn't find him getting any like Billboard Top 100 uh, singles, but I think he was like amongst a certain set of like musical fans. He was well liked. So this was the peak for him. Like things were going real well. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I even found Michael Cera did a cover of one of his songs, so big time. Oh, wow. I mean, that if, if the, the first part of the career wasn't a highlight, that must have been. <laughs> but uh, so around this sort of time, I think he started writing screenplays and uh, all the stuff he's kind of done, he's written with his son, Bruce Taylor. Hmm. Apparently they come up with stories together and then like either they'll write them together or he'll go off and write them. But apparently that's kind of the rock and poetry is his thing. But like this was kind of, I guess, a nice thing to do with his son. Hmm. So they're like the Shatners, a whole talented family. A whole talented family. Um, but the first sort of, he had a couple story by credits before, but it's kind of first big screenplay that he wrote by himself and like came out was a uh, film called The Star Chamber from 1983 starring Michael Douglas. I don't know that movie. I don't know it either. It's like a thriller that's about a lawyer who's tired of the criminal justice system and comes up with a way of punishing criminals. It actually sounds kind of interesting, so hmm. I might track it down, but... Um, but that was kind of his first big credit. And then that sort of leads into him doing Otherworld. It's interesting. He has like a feature film with Michael Douglas. Then he gets Otherworld, the TV show. And he, along the way, does more writing. Like he's been writing into the 2000s even. But I'll, I'll sort of tell you some of his noteworthy projects if you want to hear them. Sure. He wrote Kenny Rogers as the Gambler, part three. The legend continues. <laughs> Sorry, was it the legend continues? Yes. I like that. Um, I can only imagine that's a very like weird movie. He must have because yeah. to come in for the third of the trilogy. <laughs> well, you know what? That legend had to continue. The fans were like, more, more, more. But he's also in some like weirdly larger scale films. Like he wrote a Colin Farrell film in two thousand one called American Outlaws. Oh, I saw that in theaters. It's terrible. <laughs> but he and then in 2007 he uh he wrote a jody foster film called the brave one. Oh, i watched that too that one's okay yeah it's a, so he's none of these are big films necessarily but he's obviously had a fairly prolific career in some ways hmm. and for all i know still going it does seem to be a uh wildly varied career for whatever it's worth yeah very very interesting career probably a weird guy i imagine must be a weird guy to hang out and get a drink with yeah well i don't know maybe he's maybe he's really normal maybe he puts all the weirdness into this show the photo on his wikipedia page is him with like actually you know what there's a better way to describe him actually uh who's the guy who made the movie the room oh tommy wiseau or something like that he looks like tommy wiseau oh really oh well maybe he is weird that's his style choice anyway (laughs) sunglasses leather jacket long hair the listeners can't see you, but that's what how you're dressed right now. I mean, that's my style that he's biting. <laughs> all right, Jordan, you said you had something for Oh, all I just wanted to do is just add to that if we're talking a little bit about how this show came about. I did find a little bit of information. So this show aired on CBS. I think you probably mentioned that in our first episode. 84-85 season. It was actually made as a mid-season replacement. Hmm. So they had made a couple episodes just in case. And I'll mention the other shows that were also in the wings, which none of these made it. They had a show called The Lucy Arnaz Show, House Detective, and Crazy Like a Fox. Those are the other shows that were all in the wings ready to go. But what happened, the only reason this show went on the air was there was... A, you remember Stacy Keach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Stacy Keach had a show called Mike Hammer. That show was on for three years, but in the first season... He was in London, England, and he, he got nine months in prison for smuggling cocaine. 
Wow. So what happened was they had to stop production on Mike Hammer because they'd only filmed half the season. So they filmed half the season and were like, oh, no, we need to pull out one of these mid-season replacements. And the show they picked was Otherworld. Man, oh, man. They can thank Stacey Keach and his cocaine addiction for uh, getting on the air. That Otherworld really benefited off of the back of that. <laughs> yeah. So I found a little bit about it. So it's apparently... Um, the show, and we've, you know, it's something we'll probably discuss, I'm sure, in this episode with these these two uh, really bad episodes, is that the show that's on the air is not the show they wanted to make. Um, I had a quote from someone. There was conflict right from the beginning between CBS and the creators of the show. They originally, of the 13 episodes they pitched, CBS turned down 12 of them because they weren't family-oriented enough, so they had to quickly come up with some new ideas, and those are the episodes that we actually have. That so, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, actually. CBS wanted a family action adventure show, and the writers wanted to create uh, the idea they had was put a typical American family into really extraordinary circumstances and give them sort of intense situations so they could confront their worst fears and fight for their lives. That's the show they wanted to make. It's a better show. Like you can see shades of it in, the, in what we're watching, but you yeah. can also see that like someone's like, no, 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 it's a family show. <laughs> Really what happened, of course, with a lot of these shows is I was just looking at the ratings. And uh, at the time, it's kind of funny to think now, there were 67 TV shows on TV. And uh, it started out, the first episode was, I'm trying to find the ratings here. It was uh, 47th of the 65. (laughs) The second last episode was ranked 63 of 67. And its last episode was ranked 65. So it was one of the worst rated shows on TV. So they canceled it after eight. It makes sense. The tone is so inconsistent, and it's clearly because someone's trying to make a gritty, weird sci-fi, and someone else was trying to make a family adventure. Yeah, and so, but I do have the few shows that it was in, in front of through its whole run. The shows that did not do as well, so people liked less than this show, are a show called Silver Spoon, not Silver Spoons, Silver Spoon, Glitter, Behringer's, Hot Pursuit, and People Do the Craziest Things. Those are the only shows that did worse on TV. <laughs> all well remembered i'm sure yeah i know that's the synopsis and what basically happened to this show well i mean what a weird show that make all that makes a lot of sense to me yeah based on what i'm watching and really uh, as you said it's a good uh, segue into these episodes because you can really feel that push and pull of uh, what they want this show to be and what it actually is (laughs) well here is the i'm to be summary for episode five village of the motor pigs <laughs> i love motor pigs this was a great title for what it's a terrible episode but a great title while trying to escape from the zone troopers the starlings are captured by a motorcycle clan that has outlaw family life and substituted a drug-induced dream world that was courtesy of bgp well bgp pretty accurate uh except uh... except i don't think almost any of that is on the screen really because you watch it and go, okay, I kind of see what they're going, but that's not really clear and is not executed at all in this episode. I wouldn't give them too much credit for accuracy. Their name is the Sterlings, not the Starlings. <laughs> I didn't even notice. I just looked. Do you know the youngest? I'm going to ask you now. What's the youngest kid's name? Smith. Oh, you knew. I didn't know. I was looking. I was like, his name's Smith? You don't remember? Oh, I know all their names. No. He's, he shows up like once an episode and is like, ain't I a stinker? And then he leaves. <laughs> 
Well, this episode starts out, and you're going to have to forgive me. There's a few names up the top that I wrote down phonetically because I didn't know how to pronounce. And looking back when I was going over my notes, I'm like, ugh, what am I trying to say here? But it starts off in the Seth Pfizer Mountains in the Forbidden Zone. Yeah. Well, everyone knows those. They're a great vacation spot. They've been picked up hitchhiking by Velcorus Whitley in his Mad Max-style bus. His name is actually Velcros. It's spelled V-E-L-C-R-O-W-S. Velcros. Thank you. Velcros Whitley. And his bus has a name as well. Did you catch the name of his bus? No, I didn't. It was the McGaskagee Limit. (laughs) I'll tell you, the best thing in the show is the names they give everyone else. We're going to meet another guy named Pango, too. I love the names on this show. Everything else sucks. He is he is a ju- kind of a junk trader merchant who drives around the uh, mer- the uh, Forbidden Zone just kind of selling stuff. He's an entrepreneur. And, uh, yeah. And while he's been driving the family around for an unclear amount of time, he has overheard Hal just openly discussing the family being from another world. <laughs> yeah. Hal is such a little jerk because he's constantly, every episode, he's railing on one member of the family about something and be like, you've done this wrong, you've done that. And then he's just a big mouth. Hal sucks. It is crazy because I'm just like, how often do you need to remind your family they're from another world out loud? <laughs> it's true. But I mean, it is seemingly has been a long trip. Yes. And this I only bring this up because Gina at some point is forced to convince old Whittley that uh, Hal's just a writer who's making up a story. But Whittley clocked the information because he grew up in a small mountain town that had a, a strange religion that believed in other worlds. But that was uh, long before the Unification War. So just a little bit of world building that perhaps uh, this idea of other worlds has existed on the other world. By the way, how much would you rather this show just be about the unification wars or take place during the unification wars because i feel like they've chosen the most boring time period to place the show let's uh let's do that in our reboot oh yeah yeah unification wars it's called other world colon uh unification wars i even forgot what the war was dude if we get crawl back that actor is huge now it would would anchor the whole show that's true we have to call gina see what gina's up to yeah maybe gina's around still Mm -hmm. no trace though he's not allowed back now trace sucks um, anyway, they're, as they're driving through the uh, uh, Forbidden Zone, they get pulled over at a Zone Trooper check stop. And Whittley's not too worried because he has a good relationship. The Zone Troopers know him. They think he's a kooky character. They let him go around his merchanting. He mentions that he used to be a Zone Trooper. Oh, that's right. He did, didn't Yeah, because they found his... He's apparently, like, gross. He has his old uniform just sitting in the back of the van. They're like, oh, should we be worried about that? And he's like, nah, I'm a veteran. His whole bus is just full of junk. It's fine. Yep. But he's just like, no worries when they tell him we're wanted by the zone troopers. He's like, I've got a cool little hiding spot in the back of my bus. Like, it's full of, like, he's a real, like, he gives the idea that he's a real, like, hand solo. Lots of places to hide contraband. Yeah. And they all pile into this hidden compartment. And the zone troopers initially are going to just kind of let him go. But there's some new officer with them who's all by the books. So it's like, no way. You're searching this bus. And they literally just open the first compartment on the bus and there's the family yeah like gina like spills out i was like that's a terrible spot it was like so much effort to set up it's like don't worry i've got a hiding spot for you to just like they should have just been on the bus they should have just done that thing that other family did and just hold hands and go invisible oh yeah that works perfectly <laughs> what show was that that would have been earthbound earthbound sorry so for anyone listening go check out that one the uh, tv movie failed pilot earthbound yeah Anyway, uh, they're, so basically they're immediately captured by these zone troopers. The zone troopers are putting them under arrest. It's nighttime. And then out of the darkness rides a bunch of motorcycles. And the motor pigs come and abduct the family. But it was shot so darkly. And I, and I know part of this is just that the quality of that we're watching is it's been degraded quite a bit over time. 
but I couldn't tell what was happening. You just heard a lot of motorbike noises, and then they're like, yeah, they're captured. At first, I just thought they were just rescuing them. It didn't make a lot of sense, because, like, why are this happening right now? What is going on? Like, they don't take Whittley with them. Like, they just take the family. Whittley's gone from the rest of the episode. I just didn't. It seemed, like, totally random. Completely. But don't worry. We're, we're, they're going to take them to a, a society that is very fully realized. I mean, it is just Mad Max. Like, they yeah. basically are telling Mad Max Fury Road in 1985. Yeah, but it's as bargain basement Mad Max as possible. It's the alley beside the bargain basement. <laughs> they found it in a dumpster next yeah. to the bargain basement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yes, the, the motor pigs live in this sort of ramshackle camp in what appears to be a bit of a quarry. And they are led by a man named Chalk Trauma. <laughs> it's, by the way, Chalk Trauma, I looked it up, is his whole first name. It's Chalk Trauma. Oh, really? You just say it in one breath? Yeah, it's one in one breath. It's not Chalk Trauma. He's not, his, it's not Mr. Trauma to his, you know, to his lawyer. <laughs> he uh, he basically has this gang of motor pigs that he kind of keeps under his control by feeding them a uh, narcotic called chalk. Yeah, and I think we see it later, Luke, and correct me if I'm wrong, it looks like um, like a salt lick for deer. I totally missed that salt lick, but it does bring up a good point, Jordan. This may be the only time I've ever seen the idea of a narcotic is a geological feature that you can mine out of the ground. Right. Yeah, I actually assumed it wasn't even mined. I assumed they had set up in this, let's say, escarpment, this sort of uh, ground covering, because it was rich in this mineral or whatever it might be. Like, they were like, oh, this is a good source. Let's camp here. Yeah, I, I just, I don't think I've ever seen something where it's like, we get this drug by digging it out of the ground. <laughs> But the reason I say it's a salt lake is at the end of the episode, uh, spoiler alert, we see Kroll and they sort of like wipe their finger across it and lick it as if it's sort of like a, you know, like a tasty turkey. <laughs> um, anyway, we don't get a lot to know a lot about Chalk Drama, but like there is... <laughs> it's the dumbest name, Chalk Drama. <laughs> there is like kind of this uh, couple great things about him is one, he worships a glowing light inside of a cave in this quarry which we come to learn i guess is a it, it's a they call it a photo comet to crash there and just like glows light and i guess he goes to it for advice but i think we're just supposed to think he's either making up his own mind or he's just using it to control them mm-hmm. they don't give you much more than what you just said yeah and there he gets one scene all to himself where we see some motor pigs arguing over a motor they've built and one guy's like i designed it and the other guy's like i built it who owns this motor and here comes old solomon who decides i can't listen to this argument and he pulls out a chainsaw and chops it in half he's like you both get it it is quite impressive that uh, chalk trauma is able to cut a motor in half very cleanly too <laughs> um but this is sort of him he's a bit of a dictator classic mad max villain kind of thing and when the family's brought to him at the uh, Motor Pig's quarry, uh, he consults the light and decides that they're going to spare the family and let them live amongst the Motor Pigs. And what that means is they need to be broken apart into separate sort of individuals because the family needs to be... Uh, they don't believe in family. You need to become an uh, individual member of the Motor Pig. So we'll split you apart amongst the clans and you'll lose track of your family, basically. And should we say where each of them end up? 
Yeah, well, let's go through that. I've got them all written down here. Let's start with Hal. Where does Hal end up? Hal goes to the mines, which I guess is where they're possibly mining this drug. Yes, this is this is exactly it. This is where they they dig out the uh, the drug out of the out of the chalk out of the mines, basically. Mm-hmm. June. June goes to it's like medicinal petals, like flower petals that have some sort of medicinal purposes, and they put them in the water. Am I wrong? I'm not sure if it's medicinal, but yeah, she's put with a group that gathers like sweet-smelling desert flower petals that I think Chalk Trauma just likes the smell of it. So I, th- I feel like they're making a perfume or something. I love the amount of effort of introducing this whole weird backstory about these petals and the drug and stuff, but then they don't give the audience anything to hang on. They're just like, she's dealing with these petals. I was like, are they drug petals? Or they have something to do with the other drug? Like, why isn't she not working in a thing that uh, breaks down the chalk into a liquid or something. It just seemed like you're adding another element for no reason. Chalk drama just likes the smell of those flowers. I suppose. Uh, where does Trace go? Trace goes, he gets picked up by a man named Pango, played by one of my favorite character actors of yeah, all I know, time. Right? Uh, Vincent, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but Schiavelli? Schiavelli, I think that's right. Yeah, and he's... He's in everything. You will know who he is if you see him. He's the very, he has one of the most interesting faces. He's a very long face and incredibly concave eyes. I think probably most people would know him uh, famously from Ghost. He's the ghost in the train in the movie Ghost who teaches, uh, uh, what's that guy's name? Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze had to like be a better ghost. Uh, but yeah, no, great. And he's going to, yeah, Trace becomes his inventory assistant. He's in charge of distribution. That's what he says. Pango. And I would say Gina ends up in probably the worst part of this episode. Yes, Gina, Gina, and they try to skirt around it. But what is clear is Gina has been essentially sold as a prostitute to someone. Yeah, uh, one guy wants one of the blondes to use for his pleasure. Yeah, but they, they try to get around it. And you know that it was originally written as one thing and the studio or censors whoever were like guys we've got to adjust this to make it as family friendly as possible so it becomes weirdly ambiguous and more unclear i mean i'll get into that in a second i want to deal with the whole gina plot in a moment but before we move on there's one last family member what happens to smith i don't know what happens to smith smith they never say where he's sent off to he's not with anyone else he just shows up at the end right him for the whole episode (laughs) yeah that's what i thought he just shows up at the end and he's like hey it's me my assumption is that whatever they wrote for smith was too dark for television and had to get cut you just see him later he's got a scar on his face and we don't know why yeah something awful something awful has happened yeah he doesn't want to talk about it no longer verbal (laughs) he's just had some horrible post-traumatic stress but yeah, let's let's go back to this Gina plot because like, oh my god, what a nightmare this is! Like, she gets paired with this guy named Rev, who, as we said, sort of brought her on because he like he's like, I'll take either of the blondes, meaning the mother or the, or Gina. He gets Gina, and the first time we see him, he's just like really trying to woo her. He's like, hey, let's get it on, baby. Yeah, uh, I'd lo- I'd love some pleasure here, and she won't do it. And he's just like, just take some chalk and numb yourself to it. And can I say a really weird thing about this actor? I can't remember what his name is. I should have. Rev. Yeah, but the actual actor. The only other thing I know him from is years previously, he played young Clark Kent in the original Superman movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, so when he's like a teenager, that's the same actor. But he's clearly ga- he's clearly gained a lot of weight in the last 10 years. Wow, he's a little older now. Yeah, I mean, who hasn't? It's funny, he's still basically playing a teen in this, though. He looks like he's probably about 35, but he's supposed to be playing probably a teenager. To be fair, Gina's also, there's no way she's a teenager. She's got to be early 20s. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
but yeah, so this is a really creepy scene, obviously, where, you know, they're leaning into that post-apocalyptic trope of just like, women are defenseless. And Gina kind of stands up herself and she's just like, no, I'm not going to do that. You're addicted to chalk. And she really criticizes him for that. And he's just like, hey, babe, don't criticize my lifestyle. Well, this is the plot line that basically what we're going to have is Gina might be changing him to become a better person. But is that clear at all? Would you agree with me? Well, what kind of happens is like, yeah, he, they, we see him the next day after he, she refuses. And he's just like, I didn't use chalk last night. And I got I brought you this bracelet. And I think this is where the show really falls apart. It's like, you know, he's basically a rapist. And the next day, because he like made some vague change, like they really played up like, oh, well, maybe Gina could have feelings for him. I'm like, gross, you guys. This is fucking gross. They imply they did not, you know, he did not rape her. So it's like, well, so he's not a bad guy, right? Because he didn't rape her. I was like, whoa, we're setting the bar really, really low here. Yeah, he like takes her to meet his pet uh, Red Shello. <laughs> yeah, which is he has like a little pet rabbit, but he has it in the weirdest little cage. It's almost like a little hobbit hole un- under the ground. I was like, there's no way that rabbit is doing well under there. Yeah, he like gets her he gets her name tattooed on him. And he's just like, you know what, Gina, now that I'm off the chalk for like 24 hours, I think I love you. Like none of it seems authentic. It does seem just like grow. It just seems like he's still trying to have sex with her, except, the, you know, Gina does not let. She at some point he tries to kiss her again and she's like no, but it is implied that she's falling for him. Like the whole yeah. thing is awful. It's just a terrible plot line. Well, it's going to become even more clear in the next episode. But the gender relations and how they write men and women in this show is at best tone deaf and at worst pretty offensive. Yeah, but really the only thing we need to end up knowing about Rev, other than he's fucking gross, is uh, he also. <laughs> chalk trauma son for some reason not that it really matters it doesn't matter at all but yeah they, they drop that as if it's a big reveal and he's like also chalk trauma's my dad and you're like okay and he's like yep the only thing that comes up is like maybe later he's going to take over the leadership of the group after chalk trauma's gone but why it was just such a funny thing to add this show loves piling on useless information and Let's jump to Trace for a quick second. He's barely in the episode. He gets sold off to be a, a inventory assistant. I think the one other time we see him is he's essentially hooked up with a girl uh, in the Motor Pigs and is now getting high off of chalk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Trace, he, he's the worst character on this show. He's my least favorite. It's just like the, the mom walks by him and he's like hanging out next to some yeah. girl. He looks like he's a heroin addict and she's just like, Trace, don't do chalk. And there's no consequences to him getting addicted to chalk. Well, it's a good point, Luke, because this episode is so muddled in what I think is supposed to be some sort of moral, which I think is a comment on drug culture or counterculture, but it's not clear because you just have scenes like that, like, oh no, Trace is doing drugs. Like, everything's okay. So I don't know what, like, at the end of this episode, you're left feeling, what was that? Uh, Absolutely. But let's keep going. Let's talk about Hal and June because they have maybe the most plot in this episode other than Gina is... We never see them at their jobs again. We basically just see them sneaking around trying mm-hmm. to find a way out of the uh, motor pig village. And um, I think that, the way is just sneaking out, isn't it? It's not like there's yeah, any the, fences. They're literally just on a mountain range. Well, they say basically there's only one exit and it's guarded, so they're not being able to get out that way. So they're trying to find some alternate way out of this motor pig camp. And what happens basically is when they're having these secret meetings, which is very funny because every time they meet, they like make out for a little first. <laughs> they, they've eaten the rocks and they go hard at it. And you're like, okay, guys, like... Come on. 
But in one of these meetings, basically, uh, Pango, the guy in charge of inventory, he overhears Hal once again babbling about being <laughs> from another world. Yeah. And this uh, Pango wants to help them after he hears this because as he reveals to them, he happens to have one U.S. dollar passed down by his grandfather. Yeah, his grandfather might have also come through the pyramids maybe yeah that's the family lore is that the grandfather claimed to have been from another world so apparently americans have been falling into other worlds for many years and leaving their money i i had a question i don't know i didn't look closely at the u.s dollar bill but i'm just like if that man is arguably 40 years older or 50 years older than these other people i'm like does that make sense with that u.s dollar i didn't get a good enough look at it to know no you're probably right i mean that, that would have been funny if it was like it was just an old coin from like the 1800s or something. It would have made maybe more sense. But yeah. Wouldn't be as instantly recognizable, I guess. Anyway, he, Pango, used to be a minister for the Church of Artificial Intelligence. But after his heart was broken by a woman, he joined Chalk Trauma <laughs> so that he could uh, numb his feelings with the chalk. I mean, it all checks out. And he basically now wants to help the family, knowing they're possibly like his grandfather. And what he says he's seen is... Uh, Animals have been coming and going from the glowing cave with the photocomet inside of it. So he believes that the cave's not just like one way in. There must be an exit out the back of the cave somewhere. Mm -hmm. So no one's checked, though. Yeah. So he's kind of recommending that might be your way out of here. And then it was very funny is like he basically gives them the answer. And then kind of apropos to nothing, he happens to mention while they're talking about it. He's like, oh, yeah. And by the way, uh, there's no way to get Chalk Trauma out of power. Oh, you know, unless you challenge him to a blood clash. <laughs> <laughs> and what I like is this. It's obviously setting it up um, that we've had just like nothing happening except for possible rapes up for the first like 35 minutes. And, you know, they have to set up this this sort of one on one battle. We've seen so many times in these shows. Uh, Luke, what was the show where we... Um, uh, those those kids in space where they had to fight the guy with the ponytail above the pit or star voyager yeah it's the same thing and it was also in planet of the apes it was also in multiple things we've seen it's just this trope of this you know hand-to-hand combat at the end it's the only way to get rid of the leader mm-hmm. gotta challenge him um but this time of course to beat shock drama you have to face him in a quote motor machine duel yeah it's essentially jousting with motorbikes but shot and edit it as badly as possible. <laughs> anyway, uh, before they can get to this escape plot where they're going to uh, get out via the the cave, uh, Chalk Trauma starts getting pissed off because uh, essentially he finds out that uh, Rev has quit using Chalk because Gina's like told him not to use drugs. Yeah, because she's a good influence on him. And now Rev's wandering around the village telling everyone, hey, maybe try not doing Chalk for a bit. It's great. <laughs> So he accuses the family of sowing rebellion amongst his motor pigs. And um, basically Hal stands up for himself and, and accuses uh, motor, uh, sorry, not motor pig, uh, Chalk Trauma of being a dictator. And I'm just like, yeah, duh, Hal. He, of course, is a dictator. Yeah. And Hal has to challenge, his, challenge him to a blood clash. Mm-hmm. And let the games begin. And we get we get a great scene where Rev and Pango uh, train Hal in how to joust on motorbikes with a chain. Yeah, and I like that he's just like, I guess, a natural at it because he's like, I got a good, he tells uh, June later, he's like, I got a good chance of winning this thing. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm good at motorbike jousting. My question was, no one ever set the stakes. I guess it's to the death. I, I assumed it was to the death, but you're right, because I thought at first, I'm like, oh, it's the first guy to get knocked over. Uh, but that happens of, off of the bike that happens multiple times and basically um, uh, Pango says to him, like, you can't beat him on a motorbike because Chalk Trauma 
dominates on the motorbikes. So you got to get him on the ground for hand-to-hand combat. Well, and you mentioned that he, uh, House has a good chance of winning. There's like this sub sub idea in this like sort of third act here that Hal is going to do this blood clash and essentially he's giving doing it to give the family a chance to escape mm-hmm. like while it's happening they'll slip into the caves and then if Hal survives he will join them yes and I think maybe Hal saying I have a good chance of winning is just a way of maybe passating his wife and making her go on this thing but when we actually get to the blood clash everyone forgets about that plot and like the family just stands there and watches the entire blood clash and i'm just like you're supposed to be leaving i thought the exact same thing because they do have a scene where his wife doesn't want to leave and he's like just go i think i might win and it, yeah it is clearly to placator but yeah then they're just standing around and i was like i guess they just want to see him behead the guy that's what i was hoping i was hoping there'd be a scene where he would beat chalk trauma and it'd just be horribly violent and then the family would uh have to look at they'd have to look at him in a different way I mean, they haven't ever looked at him a different way after him uh, fucking them up so much. So. That's true. After having an, uh, a very explicit, overt affair with a woman uh, just a few weeks prior. I just like they didn't leave. I was just like that uh, Hal's sacrifice for them was going to be meaningless. <laughs> you know what's funny? Actually, that was the same thing that happened in that other show where we watched the thing. Again, what was the show called? Earth Star Voyager. Earth Star Voyager. The same thing happened. There, People were trying to escape and they ended up just watching the fight. <laughs> What we've learned is if there's a fight to the death, some sort of blood fight, blood feud, or whatever you want to call it, you got to stay and watch. I mean, how often are you going to see it? <laughs> That's true. Once a, once a generation, probably. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, this has all been happening in these sort of quarries with the motor pigs. We've been getting weird cutaways the whole episode to crawl. Yeah. And there's only one scene I really love of this. Because basically, what we have is they're really now investing in the idea that crawl has been chasing them, which has been kind of dropped the last couple of episodes from more or less. But there's a scene where we keep cutting to, you know, him going like, well, I think we're going to the mountains. Should we go into the mountains? There's people out there. But Luke, did you notice the one scene where he's just eating a chicken wing? No, I didn't. That's amazing. He's just talking to the guy. And for no reason, he's just eating a chicken wing. And then he just hands the chicken wing to the guy and he's like, make it so. And then leaves. I was like, what? What kind of choice was this? Yeah, it is just them slowly getting closer to like a, warm spot they saw on a satellite map yeah and like basically it's like 30 second cutaways till finally they get to the camp and it's nighttime and they're kind of hiding in the shadows of the top of the quarry and they get to see the start of basically the blood clash begin yeah and the blood clash is as we've implied it's it's two motorcycles driving around in a circle swinging chains at each other and um yeah it is just like hal gets knocked off gets back on his bike blood uh chalk trauma gets knocked off gets back on his bike until finally like i think chalk trauma knocks hal off his bike and explodes the motorbike somehow yeah it's not a well done sequence but yeah hal jumps at him they end up getting in hand-to-hand combat and like when it seems like all is lost like hal's about to die at the hands of uh, chalk trauma that's when the zone troopers just open fire indiscriminately on the group <laughs> yeah. of people watching the blood the, the blood the blood feud and chalk trauma's killed by the zone troopers. i did like that though they didn't have you know um uh how be the better the better person at combat it literally was just like well these guys are going to come and kill everyone so you're saved and yeah while this massacre is kind of happening the family sneaks off into that glowing cave and, and escapes and i the glowing cave was kind of cool because it's like a big matte painting shot l- looking down and like it's crazy and I needed n- more information and obviously I'm never going to get it from the show. But like the way the family has to go is the cave like spirals downward into the earth and I'm just like, mm-hmm. 
where are they going? They're going to the center of the earth. Yeah, which probably is a more interesting episode if it was them going down there and finding a different world of some sort, but you don't ever get to see anything. Yeah, they kind of just disappear and escape. And then what we see is Krull's subdued the motor pig village and he's like threatening them of like, we'll poison the chalk if you don't tell us where the family went. And the, you know, Rev and Pango play dumb. They're like, we don't know what you're talking about. And Krull just gives up. He's like, Ugh, whatever, I'm leaving. And yeah, he's, he's like, oh, I'm going to get rid of all your uh, all your chalk. And they're like, whatever. And he's like, well, that was the only card I had. And like the episode wraps up with the classic Hal giving a VO that explains the moral of the story which makes no sense yeah my my what i wrote down from his vo was the moral was truth and love have great power yeah what sure okay i think hal is like uh uh really lying to himself about the the things they learn in these episodes (laughs) i would agree with that i i saw a slightly different thing in the youtube comments explaining what this episode was about what was that uh one one man in the youtube wrote uh, comments wrote i saw this when it aired i was 14 I did not get the Soviet-Russia allegory at the time. Oh, was that what that was? I was like, I still don't get that allegory. <laughs> I don't know if that works at all. I, I really thought it was supposed to be like an almost an after-school special of like, don't do drugs, but, but written in the most uh, ineffective way possible. Yeah, it seemed like a critique of like hippie culture 20 years too late and like a really yeah. like reactionary one. It's like, oh, they don't believe in family and all they do is drugs. They just sleep with each other. <laughs> yeah, but we don't really see any of that. Yeah. All right, you ready for the next episode? Here is the IMDb summary for episode six. I am woman, hear me roar. Our experience in a door was one of the strangest we had ever encountered. And we were sure Commander Kroll would remember it as well. As we continued to follow the trail of obelisks toward Ema, we took some consolation in the fact that we may have brought a new understanding of freedom and dignity into at least a few people's lives. And that was enough on our journey home. The Sterlings find themselves in a place where women are in charge and men are treated like dirt. Trace (laughs) gets in trouble because of a couple of violations. And he ends up being auctioned off and the family tries to buy him. That was courtesy of RCS0411 at (laughs) yahoo.com. What what a great email or great handle, I suppose. We'll go through this. Let me ask you right off the bat. Is the overall argument of this episode that if the dominant gender in society was women, it would become a militaristic state? (sighs) It's hard to say. I mean, this is one of those, you know, sci-fi episodes that a lot of shows try. And it's really tough, I think, especially the older the show gets for them to pull off very well. But that idea where, like, the sort of dominant social class and the subjugated social class switch places yeah and then your characters wander into what feels like a world topsy-turvy and i guess you're supposed to learn something about equality from them it's a risky move for a show to try because if you do it badly you look worse uh and the show is not a well-written show to do this i think it's a good point you have to have a very deft hand at the best of times and this this is a sledgehammer that's just swinging indiscriminately. Yeah, 100%. And I don't even think believes in the message it's telling. Honestly, I can't tell who they hate more, men or women, in this episode. And I think you could make a very good argument for either. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yes, the family has ended up in a new province, the uh, province of Ador. And of course, they head to the nearest suburb and find a for rent. <laughs> if there's one thing that's consistent in this show is they got to live in a suburb. 
Um, essentially, they find a place. There's, the landlord is there, and uh, she's going to rent them this place. But what they kind of find out from her very quickly is that she does not want to hear Hal speak. In fact, she's surprised to find out that the men won't be sleeping in the servants' quarters here. And uh, very quickly, they find out that having inter- intergender involvement is very frowned upon within a door. That's right. But I should say... It is funny because Hal always is taking command. He's decided he's always the person who's asking questions and speaking and getting information. And he will keep getting shot down in this episode. 100%. He he needs to speak at all times. Yeah. Yes, th- this world is run by the, or this province is run by the stratification laws. And uh, essentially putting it in a place where it's a matriarchal society. And uh, sort of, they get the rental, even though this landlady does not care for how close the males and females seem to be. And as she leaves... The whole family has a good laugh at the idea that women would be better than men. Yeah, and this idea, as you've mentioned, is not an original idea. We've seen it several times now in these sci-fi shows. But the world they start setting up, and the more you get into it, the less it makes sense how this actual this actually works. Yeah, well, let's talk about Adora as a province for a second. Yeah, like, women are in charge. Men are essentially servants who can be bought and sold. And the way everyone treats them is... It's as if the rest of this world doesn't exist for a long time. Like, I kept being like, I'm like, you guys must know that there are other parts of this world. That's one of the biggest problems is that you almost have to ignore everything you've seen before in previous episodes because there's no way they don't know about things that are happening outside of their, let's call it province or state, because it just doesn't make any sense. And not only that, those places must know what's happening here because this will become weirdly a plot point but grilling a steak as innocuous as that might seem they have steaks beef steaks but we've made it very clear that in other places they don't even know the differences of meat because they just it's just called meat so the understanding that remember they were like pork what's pork we don't even know what that is but how could you not know what it is if this whole society has enough of an industry that they can have cattle raised and butchered and produced and sold to people yeah i mean i want to just touch that barbecue thing for one second i don't know if you caught this but in this world obviously men are in charge of cooking and cleaning and all that stuff that would traditionally be a, a female gender role but there does not appear to be kitchens the only thing men do is barbecue. Yeah. So all food is barbecue prepared, which is such a dumb idea. I did notice that, yeah. Um, but yeah, like I, for a while, I was trying to wrap my head around how this province fits into the other provinces because they should know about like clearly male-dominated societies that exist outside of their province. They do finally get into that a little bit. And like, I'm going to quickly talk about how they explain the mythology of this province fitting mm-hmm. into the grander world. And I think that'll help set up the episode a little bit. But essentially what we come to learn is Ador basically exists because after the Fourth Unification War, (laughs) the hero of the Black Mirror campaign, Commander Livia, was given control of Ador. And what we learn is because she had been marginalized by her male superiors in the Zone Troopers for so long, she basically was never given promotions. She was always kind of kept down. When she was given control of this province, she basically instituted these stratification laws that would allow women to rule and men to serve as sort of a reaction to how badly she was treated um, by her male superiors and the zone troopers, mm-hmm. which is uh, an interesting idea. Like, I think that's... There's no question. There's a nugget of an interesting idea here. It's just that I honestly of anything we've seen... I can't think of something that falls as flat in the execution as this episode. 
It is funny. Like that nugget seems interesting, but then they seem to give it to, I don't know if they gave it to a writer or if maybe just like they as a whole didn't even believe their own idea because they're constantly putting down the idea that women would be any good at ruling. Yeah. Well, that's what the interesting thing is because it's just so muddled. They just aren't consistent with their idea because you're right. There's an idea that what would the society look like if gender traditional gender roles were reversed? But then they're just like, oh, it's also like a, a sort of, Police state, why? I don't know why. It just, yeah. it reeks of a bad Roddenberry idea. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I would even say it makes me appreciate that how Roddenberry is maybe a little more even handed than this. I would agree. Um, but yeah, in practice, what we get to see is like Hal uh, gets a hilarious job interview. And this is another thing that doesn't make sense in the world. He goes to, they basically, the interview is really to see what his um, intellectual level is and, and as how a man. they, as a man, and how they do it is they basically start showing him really basic words i'm sure you wrote down what it is like like words and then phrases and as it goes we kind of keep cutting back and we find out that obviously he can read and he's very articulate so they're sort of blown away that he can put together these uh these sentences in his quote-unquote job interview yeah all the women at the employment office are blown away that he can read these cue cards i believe i believe it ends with them being like we've never met anyone so smart and good looking as you (laughs) Yeah, they have, they have to let the viewer know that, by the way, you should be attracted to this dad. But Luke, what job does he get because he can show that he can read? The best job available to a man in a door is a grocery store vegetable waxer. Yeah, vegetable waxer. And I did like that. But I have a question for you. If they're implying that most men in the society can't read, how are they able to even function as said servants? Because the implication is they have to go do you know, what they keep saying is women's work. They have to go do shopping. They have to do these things. You need to be able to read to do a lot of these uh, chores. Yeah, it is a weird, like, not one-to-one comparison. It's just like, women aren't illiterate. <laughs> That's what it's like. Oh, what if gender roles were reversed? Also, the men are slaves. You're like, but women aren't slaves. And this is not, It just it's just so dumb. It, yeah, it doesn't like, they're making some weird assumptions. I don't know. It doesn't quite work. But like you mentioned like shopping. June tries to go grocery shopping with Smith to get household goods. And uh, as the bouncer at the front of the grocery store says, women aren't allowed in grocery stores. You'll have to send your midget servant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. he's clearly a child. Yeah. And she's very angry. She's like, uh, excuse me, my son will grow to be very tall. Thank you very much. I do actually like that. That's true. When the guy says that, Smith looks up at her and asks, she's like, mom, am I a midget? <laughs> <laughs> she's like no you're just stupid anyway uh as tone deaf as that is smith does go in and do the grocery shopping and when he comes out he's just got like a grocery cart full of junk food yeah and it's unclear whether it's because he didn't follow the list or because there's nothing but junk food because that's all men would buy inside of a grocery store yeah I, I don't know because he comes out and he says that's all there was and you're not sure if you're supposed to be like isn't that hilarious a kid doesn't know how to shop or they were like no no that's what men buy but he did buy steaks and Gina's beef jerky. Yeah, it was weird that they said Gina's beef jerky. I'm like, is again, is that a joke? Or are we supposed to learn something about her character? She really loves beef jerky, apparently. Yeah. Um, and of course, what we find out when Trace and Gina try to go to school, only Gina's allowed to go to school. <laughs> because that's the reverse. But thankfully, Trace finds something to do at school, which is gawk on some women in a dance class. Mm-hmm. Like, he seems like a creep. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, he doesn't make a great argument for men. Uh, I do like, though, he goes in and what he says, he's like, oh, I was just watching you girls doing your, quote, karate rock dancing. Karate rock dancing. Which 
I'm not sure if to think it's a dance class he's walked in and on, in on or some sort of martial arts class. But what's insane is like this is, you know, in theory, a uh, matriarchal run society. And the women he's watching his dance class are in bodysuits and high heels doing martial arts. So everything in an episode that's supposed to be like, oh, women run the world is still through like the most gratuitous male gaze possible. Like they have yeah. to be dressed as sexy in heels or they couldn't be powerful but i will give the show credit they are just as gross to men in this as they are to women well it's so fun because like the two twins who he's gawking on they kind of like throw him to the floor and like they're gonna beat him up but gina intervenes to like rescue him and the whole thing is they go home and then gina's just like trace almost got beat up by girls and it's supposed to be hilariously emasculating well not only that in this same scene i don't know if you call it the one line it's gina saying it and she and they're laughing about that, and then they're talking about how, again, how hilarious these gender roles were reversed. And Gina says, the men are being treated like they're a different race or something. Ugh. And I thought, oh, guys, like, oh, man, you're doubling down on the awful. Yeah, don't, you guys can't handle this. You, you walk yeah. away. Yeah. Um, anyway, June and Gina are then forced to attend a neighborhood women's club meeting, which is, I guess, a mandatory thing in every neighborhood. And what it is, it's basically just like a book club of some sort. They're discussing one of the stratification laws, I believe, 121C, that uh, ended biocoupling. And, like, one of the women gets up to tell a cautionary tale about the time uh, a man tricked her into falling in love with him. And as soon as they were married, he uh, got lazy, fat, and sick all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I like like that it's not enough that he got lazy and fat, but the guy had, like, a cold or something. Um, but uh, the true tragedy of it all is when she finally auctioned him off, she got a low price, and now her finances are very badly as a result. <laughs> it was a bad investment. Uh, meanwhile, Hal and Trace go off to a, a men's party, which I guess happens at the same time, which is basically just a trivia night where you can win household goods. Yeah, what what was the joke there? I didn't understand. I don't know. I think it was the idea of, like, this is what women— if if men had parties like women do which i think in their mind is just tupperware parties maybe okay what it would look like i don't know if i've made it clear i hated this episode did you catch the one piece of trivia we get to hear though i had so many questions after i heard it (laughs) no what was it the one piece of trivia they ask is who was the only peacetime praetor to accidentally shoot himself in office (laughs) yeah and who was it did you catch the name i didn't get the name but i was just like how many wartime praetors shot themselves in office Maybe. Well, you know, during those unification wars, it was a dark time. It just the implication is so many guys shot themselves in their office. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, uh, the point of this party is the host of the men's party notices how clever Hal is. So he offers him a job other than being a vegetable waxer. He's like, how would you like to go? become a door-to-door forpleware salesman <laughs> do you like forpleware love it love that forpleware no <laughs> idea what it is but yeah. uh, how's this like sure i'll give it a try i assumed it was shapewear for men could be could be anyway we you know this is what we're kind of seeing how this society practices uh, works in practice anyway um like we see gina going to school at some point and all the girls in her class are ogling the men for sale in Available Hunk magazine. I love Available Hunk magazine. Did you see what the first guy, when she opens the page, they're almost like a um, a very tame Playboy centerfold. You have to turn the uh, magazine sideways. And the first guy they see, his it, it says on, uh, it's just like a picture of like a shirtless guy. And it says, hi, my name is Rod and I like to sing and eat. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like their version of Maxim magazine or something. Yeah, no, Luke, 
let's say you were in this magazine available hunk what would it say for your for your little blurb no good question Mm. (laughs) hi i'm luke i like to eat and play video games oh nice mine would be i'm grumpy all the time (laughs) (laughs) hi i'm jordan i'm grumpy sorry about that (laughs) <laughs> very good i like it yeah. i like it uh i really like that all the girls in class when they're looking at all the men available because this is basically an auction magazine when the men go for auction this is where you're going to look at who's going to be available hot guys in the front in the back with smaller pictures all the old and ugly guys <laughs> and we do get to see we do get to see later on like a really old guy at an auction and he's just like well <laughs> i'm old <laughs> well I, what i liked is when they're looking through the guy all the girls want to pool their money together to buy looks like andrew dice clay i didn't remember he was less like in a leather jacket and he just i was just like this guy just looks like andrew dice clay i'm like this is so weird that anyone would want to buy andrew dice clay like, oh old mother hubbard went to a cupboard oh <laughs> uh, but yeah this is kind of what we see at school there and uh how meanwhile has been kind of making friends with the male servant next door um the, the basically couple next door is he and his wife are a bit of a low-key uh, bio couplers they're they love each other but they keep it on the down low so that nobody knows that they're like yeah. breaking the stratification laws um but he essentially fills hal in on kind of how the world came to be like this and all that stuff and hal's reaction to finding out about you know commander livia being uh looked over by her male superiors and then starting this sort of province to give women a chance is i believe hal says about it all he's pissed off because he doesn't see why they should be punishing him for something that happened to women before he was born mm-hmm. and i was just like get fucked hal yeah he sucks hal is one of the worst characters that we've seen lead a tv show he sucks like, why should i have to pay for things that people did before me and i'm i'm getting privileges from i don't i don't think that's fair it's funny because if they had actually just leaned into this like they could have in other episodes when they seem to sort of be making some sort of point they could have made something interesting here they could have had how learn something about himself and his place in society but they just they're, they're not uh forward thinking enough the problem is Hal is always supposed to be the moral center. So anything right. Hal does is correct. Right. And Hal is almost always wrong. Right, right. Obviously, that's given us in the year 2020. But I got to say, even for t- 1985, I feel like the gender politics of this episode feel dated for that time. I agree. I feel like this almost feels like 15 to 20 years behind much more subtle discussions. Like, I think... All in the Family, which was mid-70s, did this better than they did. Now, that's maybe not a fair comparison. That guy's a great TV show. But it's like, guys, you're way, way behind. It's kind of weird because early on in it, they presented Trace and Gene as the two teenage kids as both being equally horny, which I thought was like, oh, I assume Gina would be shamed for that, but they've never done that. And I saw so I was just like, so there's some good stuff in this show, but this episode really undoes any good work they've ever done. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway, uh, to the plot, more or less, uh, Trace and Smith decide to go to the mall, and, and they're loving it because they're, as they say, oh, it's great to get to shop and have fun like women usually do. <laughs> yeah, and what I like is, did you hear, um, so the, uh, the two boys go to the mall, and they, uh, I think they get in the elevator, and you can hear over the, the, the speaker the different um, floors, like what they have available, and I wrote down three of the things that you hear they, they, uh, that are available. One is male disciplinary supplies. <laughs> One is gender disinfectant. Whoa. And then and my favorite, they just mentioned it really passing, is taxidermy services. Implying <laughs> implying that 
they have <laughs> the men are being killed and then stuffed and displayed in houses i missed that entirely that's amazing yeah um but yes they get on this elevator and essentially they are getting trouble and are arrested by the gender police for riding a women's elevator unaccompanied by the way isn't the idea of writing something called gender police the most ridiculously right-wing uh, conspiracy theory sort of uh, uh, shorthand for something, you know? Yeah, well, I, let me correct myself. It's the gender patrol, I apologize. They're just essentially a police force. And if you look at the YouTube comments of this, they're all like, this is what would happen if a women's studies department took over the world. And it's just right. like all the worst people who this, this is exactly their worldview. <laughs> right, exactly. That's what I mean. It's like this, this weird narrative that doesn't exist except on YouTube comments. Also, did you notice every woman in the gender patrol they all wear heels. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. I didn't notice, no. Like, anyone in this show, it's just like, a woman in power, they have to be wearing heels for some reason, because it's such a male show. Well, they do have, the sort of bureaucrats do seem to wear more militaristic clothing, and they're not like, it's not sexy clothing. No, except for the heels. Except for the heels. It's just a little touch. Anyway, uh, because this is their first offense, they're handed over to their block leader, which is the landlord we saw earlier, who, did you notice when we cut into her house, the camera starts off on a shot of a very racist doll? I did notice that. It was so weird. It almost felt like they were trying to point out something, but it was like, no, no, that's just an interesting thing to start the scene on. Crazy. I was just like, what the fuck is going on in this episode? Anyway... The family comes to pick them up from the block leader, and Trace tries to defend himself. He's just like, all I did was get on an elevator, and I was put in a headlock by a woman. <laughs> That's the worst. That was well, the worst and Hal's response, this place is ridiculous. <laughs> yep. Uh, basically, the landlord, who has been suspicious to them since they moved in, this like this is too much for her. So that night, she like breaks into the family's house while they're at dinner, and she finds their access crystal, the one they've been using to like get around the one they stole from Kroll. But she has no idea what it is. Yeah, it makes no sense. Makes they zero live in sense. in the same world. Well, that's the thing. It's like they've explicitly said over and over that the access crystal is something that's used all over the world and it gives you access to everything. Computers. So, yeah, there's, there's no way they'd be able to do anything. And they must have the same technology. technology. Yeah, It doesn't exactly. make any sense. And it's great because she calls the gender patrol to report it to them. And I did kind of like this. The gender patrol is totally indifferent to her call. Yeah. And I, and I don't know the actress's name, but I do know she was a recurring character on MASH. She plays one of the nurses that's in all of the seasons. She's just like not one of the main characters. And I like that actress. And I thought she was funny in this too. She was good, actually. She was good in this in this part. Um Anyway, uh, while they're at dinner, the family has basically decided they're going to leave the province because they can't take it here anymore. The The way it's set up is too unequal for them. Um, but when they go to pack, they immediately notice the, the access crystal is missing. So they're going to be stuck here until they can figure out who took it. Well, I like that they first, obviously something's missing, and they all sort of get on poor Gina's case. Be like, you must have lost it. You must have lost it. Remember that time three years ago when you lost that pair of keys? But then they're having this argument, and then immediately the mom's like, I think someone stole it. And they're like, yep, seems about right. I'm like, there's no indication someone stole it, but sure, let's keep this plot going. I did find it funny. They really pile on Gina, and I'm just like, if you don't trust her, why did you let her carry it? Yeah, I actually thought the same thing. It's like, Hal's clearly a man's man. He should be holding the crystal. Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought, too. Anyway, uh... Everyone kind of goes about their businesses, like when Hal goes to work, and uh, so does Gina, who works at a pet store in this world. <laughs> oh, did she? 
that's what they say. Um, basically leaving Trace and Smith at home to take care of the household chores. And at some point, Smith's like, I'm hungry, Trace. Barbecue me a steak. <laughs> I like that because it was such an odd line that you knew it was going to be developing to something because i've never seen a character in tv say i'm hungry make me a steak i was like that's so specific i think there's an implication in this world that the only thing men make is steaks because that's all men can make the point is so they can go outside to barbecue so that what's his face can accidentally spill grease all over his shirt yeah i was obsessed with the idea that also you barbecue in your front yard in this world (laughs) oh i didn't even notice that but yes, he goes out. There's a scene where he's just like, put that barbecue sauce for me on the steak, Trace. And Trace can't get the lid off of it. So he squeezes it so hard, the barbecue sauce explodes at the back all over his shirt. And so then he has to take off his shirt and show off his sexy uh, nubile body. Um, yeah, the, and the landlord and, is buying from next door. Yeah, she can't take it. She's like, oh, why never? She's so horny for him that she calls gender patrol. And we get like a Benny Hill style scene where Gender Patrol shows up in their high heels and chases him down the street. That's right. And uh, his his charge is being uh, naked, I think. Yeah, you're just not allowed to have your shirt off unless you're in Available Hunk magazine. Yeah. And because it's a second offense, it means he's getting auctioned off. That's all there is to it. You're, you're auctioned away. Your old family can't buy you back. And we get a we get a scene where he's greased up for a photo shoot in Available Hunk magazine. Well, there's a couple things about this. One we've learned in this overall world that in a previous episode, if there's an offense, you're sent to the military, like if you flunk at a school, or you're in this world, you're sold uh, to auction immediately. Immediately. Yeah, but yes, he is. He's greased up, and they have this scene where it's like he doesn't know how to put the grease on himself. And I, I'm gonna say later on, they see a picture of the parents, and it's my favorite line of the episode. Because they're looking and the mom's like, look at him. He's he's like all glistening or something. And the dad goes, probably just vegetable wax. I know. They brought back vegetable wax. It made me laugh so hard that he's now an expert on vegetable wax. It was the only thing that's redeeming in this entire episode. It was the only good callback, I agree. Um, did you... Uh, I love the photo they took of him. He's got a chain hung around his neck. <laughs> and he's got a candy cane in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. And what did, what did it say? It, his little thing says... I like chicks and manual labor. Yeah, hi, I'm Trace. I like chicks and manual labor. <laughs> yeah, it should have said walking on the boardwalk in L.A. <laughs> um, also, he's up for a low price. <laughs> yeah, that's, what is it? He's like 40 bucks or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Vaughn's, my friend. Oh, 40. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Anyway, uh, well, this is all happening to Trace. The family, you know, they now suspect the landlord of being the one who stole the crystal because she's so mean to them. So they break into her house and like, find the crystal but they find it in there's no way like it's hidden under like a bust of something and gina just happens to pick up the bust and then pull it from underneath because there's apparently a secret spot under there for hiding things specifically shaped like a crystal yeah i don't know it it was so weird because there was really no stakes to it they're just like they went in they picked up the bust there was the crystal they walked out (laughs) i mean it was what it was it was another scene to kill time before we get to the the sexy man meet but now that we're 30 minutes into the episode, it's time for Kroll to enter the story. I, and he enters in the weirdest way. What's the shot we get to as we start on him? He's like, apparently he's on leave on a sexy date in a restaurant and the woman is nibbling his ear. Yeah. So we start on an extreme close up of the woman chewing on his ear. And then we slowly pull out and we're like, Kroll is sexy. <laughs> He he's interrupted on this date by uh, by a man who's there to tell him that his access crystal has been found in a door. I guess the gender patrol called it in eventually. And 
the subordinates was like, we'll have to go get it, but we should wait till we have backup before we go to a door because, you know, there are crazy, crazy rules in that province. Yeah, well, there's too many crazy women. We don't want to go there. Um, but Crawl's not going to wait. He needs his access crystal back. And as he says to his subordinate, as he, like, manhandles his date's face, he, like, grabs her face and crushes it in his hands. He's like, I know how to handle a woman. And she's pleased about it. She she looked uncomfortable to me. But... No, I thought she was. I thought she was into it. <laughs> um, but of course, they get to a door, and Kroll goes to the gender patrol, and he like immediately calls them incompetent women and female fools. Yeah, he's intentionally or otherwise sort of goading them. Come in and hot. I think at some point he calls their founder uh, Livia, Commander Livia. Everyone knows she was a lush, and that's the final straw. <laughs> and they're ticked off. They essentially strip him and put him into like. Uh, 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 prison clothing, and he's, for all intents and purposes, in jail now. Yeah, they're like, you know what? We could use some low-value men for the auction tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, he's basically like, he's 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 someone you put it at the beginning to be like, yeah, let's get a, a couple bucks and get get that things going. And of course, we now cut to the auction at the gender arcade. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the family's there. They've they've talked to that bio-coupled neighbor neighbors the uh, ones who have been on the down low and they basically asked them to be the straw buyers so they can buy trace back at this auction and they've agreed because they've learned so much from the sterlings i guess yeah they've learned as much from the sterlings as that other guy rev learned from gina in the previous episode which is they've had one conversation yeah and the auction is basically a, a real chippendale style show men mm-hmm. come out and flaunt the wares and women women bid on them and they hoot and holler the whole time yeah like a hunky guy comes out and they sell him and then as you mentioned a comically old man comes out and they auction him off yeah he looks like an old prospector from a western that's the joke he's like ah, look at me i can wear a barrel i believe they say he likes uh he likes puttering around the garage and fixing electronics or something <laughs> that's, that's that's not bad you could do worse <laughs> I'd rather have that than that Trace, wouldn't you? What's Trace going to do? He likes chicks and eating. Manual labor. Manual labor. I don't labor. believe he does. No, he doesn't even know how to grill a steak without spurting it all over himself. But yes, Trace is brought out next. The The neighbors, you know, there's a bidding scene where like, will they get him back? Yes, they will. <laughs> there's zero excitement in this bidding. It's not like there's a tense, are they going to do it or not? There's like, the only thing that's enjoyable is the other person who apparently wants Trace for her, I think she says her daughter. Her um, granddaughter. She's like a kind of a kooky lady, and she has she has like a little uh, air horn that she like like keeps squeezing the entire time. That's the only yeah. thing that's enjoyable about it. It is funny. Like the whole, I think the stakes of it are like at some point they get to like 180 Vons or something, and then June's just like, "That's all the Vons we have." I'm like, "How do you even? How? What? I don't understand how many Vons you have." And the other couple's like, "It's okay. We'll take from our savings." I'm like, "Who cares?" <laughs> the whole point is they buy him back. So yeah. there you go. And as Trace comes off the stage to rejoin his family, they're like, we better go. And he's like, hold on a second. You're going to want to see who's up next for auction. Yeah, and it's him and he's angry and he yells at the women and they're like, we'll still buy him though. Yes, it is. We get a first name for Kroll. Naveen Kroll comes out in a (laughs) golden sparkly tank top. And uh, I believe they've passed out a brochure, a new brochure with his photo. And I believe his thing is, hi, I'm Naveen. I like to yell and shout. No, it wasn't yell and shout. It was yell and shoot yell and shoot that's right yeah yeah which i'm just like i guess that's like you i'm grumpy all the time yeah who's gonna buy that yeah i, w- I would have just been standing there with my clothes on with my arms crossed <laughs> all right bid on me if you want 
But yeah, essentially this is it. The uh, the family escapes to another province, and we get like uh, one of the more interesting shots of the show is it's them walking down a highway, and it's a matte painting surrounded by huge sculptures. Like it's a more interesting shot than we've seen all episode. And yeah. like what we see is the of course the classic voiceover from Hal explaining what the moral is or what happened this episode. And this time it is he the quote <laughs> for his voiceover is, "We brought a new understanding of freedom and dignity to a door." I was like. Did you? Yeah, it makes no sense. It's it's almost as if they, when they were originally outlining the show, they said this is what the morals are going to be, but then they forgot as they wrote the episode. There's some implications, like at least to some people, I'm like, I, like maybe those neighbors, like you didn't do anything, you didn't help anyone in this episode, and they made it quite clear they're ruining those neighbors' lives. Those neighbors went out of their way by bidding on this guy. They're spending all their money and apparently are going to be ostracized from society now and have to go somewhere else. That's what they say. Well, and I think part of the moral he goes to is just like what they learn from us is that like everybody should be equal or something. I'm just like, but Hal doesn't believe that. It's such a bad episode. It's surprisingly bad for a show that let's be fair is not a great show this is such a bad episode yeah i mean it just the most disingenuous like it felt like a straw argument being had for 45 minutes. yeah agreed um so here's some final notes for you the jordan these two youtube episodes we watched were clearly pulled off of some sci-fi channel what was that it's like these like lame editorial jokes through the whole episode it's kind of like pop-up video yeah yeah that's a that's a good way to describe it and occasionally it was like they'd pop up an interesting fact like uh there was a pack that popped up that i looked into about chalk trauma the actor who played him Mm. and they mentioned something he's just like used to be a child preacher and i looked at it and apparently the actor who played him growing up he was like in some sort of i don't know some very showy religious like thing where he was like the youngest ordained minister of all time and like you know did big presentations and stuff and then he became an actor later but the other pop-up videos were really skeevy. Well, yeah, they were like it was someone trying to be funny, but and but it was like but undercutting the show that they're showing. It's sort of like, hey, isn't it hilarious that we're showing this crappy show? And it'd be stuff like three seconds to man meet, three, two, one, and then you get a shot of like uh, Trace with his shirt off. It was just stuff like that. Yeah, like hot babes in five seconds, and then the women in leotards. It was just like, what is happening? Yeah, it was just someone had decided this was a hilarious idea, and since it's aired, it's still not funny. And it's too bad. Honestly, I was just like, a pop-up video with trivia about these actors and this thing would be great. I would actually enjoy that. But like, mostly it was just like, a weird use for pantyhose in five seconds. Yeah, it was dumb. I just, yeah. after I saw a couple of them, I just tried ignoring them. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I don't know. Any, any final thoughts before we write these? Uh, yeah, this show has delved into a real craptacular cesspool of poop. <laughs> All right. Well, Jordan, what do you want to rate Village of the Motor Pigs? I am going to give Village of the uh, Motor Pigs a 2 out of 10. I thought it was a mess of an episode. I didn't think it was interesting, and I didn't think it articulated any of its ideas, and I was angry at the time I spent. 2 out of 10. Yeah, I am in agreement. I think I'm going to go to a one for more of Bay of the Motor Pigs. There's not really a lot redeeming in it. I kind of yeah. liked Whittily off the top, but he's gone immediately. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, he, he was interesting. You're like, oh, he's got Mr. T, <laughs> like earrings. Great. And then it's like, no, let's just have the characters kill time. And that's, I think, the greatest sin of this show, which, and there's a lot, is from a just actual TV viewer point of view, 
they just feel like they're uninterested in the show they're trying to present and they're just killing time until the last five or ten minutes where they're like and no stuff happens all right our second episode of the day i am woman hear me roar i needed a little room on the first episode uh to go down further this is going to get a one out of ten and that one is literally just for the line where hal says probably it was just vegetable wax that's the only thing that gets this a one out of ten otherwise it would be zero i hated it so much i'm giving it a zero man i'm going all the way down this episode fucking sucked this was one of the worst episodes of television we've watched in 120 of these podcasts i agree i mean we've watched some stuff i haven't enjoyed but i haven't been like so annoyed and angry with an episode in so long yeah i actually don't think we for all the time we've spent talking about it have even articulated how bad of an episode of television this is it was putrid yeah i hated it anyway that wraps it up for these two episodes yeah here's the thing there's no way the next two episodes could be as bad as these there's no way yeah, I mean, these have to be the low point. They have to be. Yeah. If you have some thoughts, you can email us at continuedrag.gmail.com. If you're going to defend... Uh, don't bother. I am Woman Hear Me War, please don't. Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't bother. bother. It's it's bad. There's no there's no argument about it. This is a bad, bad episode of television. I can't imagine anyone defending it, but uh, if you're thinking about it, don't bother. The writer of the show, he's like, guys, I tried really hard. <laughs> I'll, I will accept apologies from the writer. Yeah. I just wanted an episode about guys grilling steaks. But uh, on Instagram and Twitter, we'll covers have some clips from the shows, uh, so you can you can get a you can get a taste of the the travesties we watch. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, that about wraps it up. So, listener, thank you so much for uh, delving into these with us. Now you never have to watch them. Yeah. Uh, Jordan, I'll see you next week. All right, let's go have that chalk party now. Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rex Seedler. Produced by Jordan Dulloch and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Hughes.